Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the UK and around the world. And as ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on British foreign policy now and in the recent past, uh, because I think there are many lessons, most of them depressing, uh, when reflecting on British foreign policy, uh, not least in the light of the manoeuvrings vis-a-vis Ukraine. Um, It will include, by the way, Keir Starmer's speech uh, last week or interviews he gave around his support for NATO and so on and the articles he wrote, uh, because that too, I think, raised some questions. Um, And then some fantastic questions. Uh, The the great thing, for those of you new to the podcast, is that we have this fantastic community of people with expertise in all kinds of areas. So we've got a question or a point uh, from a brilliant lawyer explaining how odd the questionnaire is that has been sent to Boris Johnson and others in number 10, 50 of them over Partygate, the questionnaire sent from the police. We've got uh, Dominica from France, our French correspondent, explaining how the French government are dealing with the soaring cost of energy bills. It's very interesting to compare with the British example. Many more. Brilliant, brilliant questions. I'm going to get a lot more in today. Uh, So tune in for those. Uh, So before my kind of reflections on British foreign policy, sounds so grand um just our usual assembly notices first of all thank you so much for those of you who've signed up uh, to patreon uh patreon began with this podcast last week and it's great that so many of you are supporting it thank you very much and please join us um you get all kinds of bonuses uh, including i forgot to mention this you get this, depending on the tier, there are about five tiers, uh, one of which you get this rock and roll politics mug with our favourite word, a cup of consequences. Uh, you know, I'm, I can't wait to get hold of this mug. I haven't got one yet. Uh, they're like gold dust. Anyway, as some of you will know, you also get bonus podcasts, uh, the current series being on general elections. And the one in the, the moment is on February 1974, what I argue is the strangest election of the 20th century. And some of those who have subscribed to the Patreon are asking for the next uh, election podcast, which ones they would like. So uh, James Bustin suggests 1992. Uh, That's quite a popular choice, actually, James, and it is a really interesting election you know when you think about it the fourth successive conservative win uh neil kinnock his big chance gone yeah that's a good one uh holly stafford thank you james for joining patreon holly stafford thank you holly uh suggests 1979 and 1997 one of those two both big turning points both i think uh holly one of your children uh studying those elections it's really weird to have lived through elections that people now study. But they, they are really interesting because they represented profound turning points in a way that February 74 didn't. Uh, 74 was weird, 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 but wasn't a turning point. In a way, it was a sort of continuity, even though Labour won and the Conservatives were out. Just one. 
Uh, Stuart Mills wants uh, 1945. Well, there's another turning point election. Yeah, yeah, that that has to be in there, doesn't it? Uh, uh, thank you, Holly Stewart, for joining Patreon. Simon McVicker uh, would very much like to hear on four general elections. 64, Wilson squeaking in. Uh, my favourite TV election, 1970. The genuine shock of the Heath victory. Yeah, that one is weird again because no few expected Heath to win. I think Heath expected himself to win. He had a certain self-confidence at that point. Uh, 1979, Thatcher coming to power. So there's another vote for 79. And the one I worked on very closely, uh, 1992. So another vote for 1992. Simon, thanks so much for supporting us on Patreon. Patreon. Definitely some of those will feature. And Rich Paul, Rich, I don't know your name, but that's how it comes out on the Patreon site, goes for 1992, but adds that 1974 was the most extraordinary until 2019. That other, uh, the February 74 in a cold dark winter and of course december 2019 that other odd 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 winter election so um uh thank you to all of you who've subscribed and that's uh james holly stewart simon rich keep on letting me know what elections uh, you want uh the next one will be early next month and so we'll decide together and you can see kind of where it's going next i think it will just be i suppose the most popular one next and then we've got time you know, the joy of this is the space. We'll do as many as possible before moving on to another series. Anyway, you can join at uh, Patreon slash Rock and Roll Politics, and the link will be on the blurb for this podcast. See you all there, I hope. Now, before your questions, British foreign policy. Here we go again, really, uh, with uh, y- y- Ukraine. Now, by the time you listen to this, uh, who knows what will have happened in terms of uh, Putin's intentions. Uh, but what is clear, again, is British foreign policy is all over the place, partly as ever in Britain. Uh, there are domestic calculations being made uh, by Johnson in his stance. Uh, do you remember that he sort of rushed to Kiev the day, I think, the day after we had the so-called update from Sue Gray? And this uh, symbolism is just the latest episode where British foreign policy is partly determined by domestic considerations. And there is a clear message coming out from Johnson uh, that this is not a time to remove a prime minister when he is embarked on uh, this major international, embarked on or involved in this major international crisis. So he went out there for a a photo opportunity, in effect, to bolster his position in the UK. But the British position is, as is often the case, more confused than that. It's about Britain's place in the world. It is now outside the European Union. And remember all that talk about global Britain, global Britain, riding the seas, Churchill. It's so far removed from that. Basically, it seems that the British government is tonally adopting at least as hawkish an approach as the United States. As ever in these situations, uh, British governments do not consider deeply what might be best in terms of foreign policy, but in terms of where it stands 
with the United States. And the hawkishness is accompanied by negative briefings about Germany and France and so on, which has all kinds of implications. The hawkishness is not accompanied by clearly thought through measures, either to deter Putin or to begin a diplomatic initiative with Putin. Did you see Liz Truss, um, this sort of dressing up as Thatcher, you know, she famously was in the tank. Uh, last week in, in Moscow, she had she sort of looked like Thatcher when she was in Moscow. But she had that famous meeting with the Russian foreign minister and the press conference afterwards, where clearly it had been a disaster. She looked steely-eyed, thinking, I must look like Margaret Thatcher. Party members will be watching this. Tory MPs will be watching this. I will be stealing. But the essence of diplomacy is to find some space, however small, to engage with the counterpart. Otherwise, there's no point flying to Moscow, other than to be like Margaret Thatcher for a domestic audience. Clearly, she came with nothing but to assert. Uh, So that's pointless. You know, she could have done that in a phone call. And it's an interesting contrast with uh, Macron, who, of course, is being accused of being naive and appeasing in his visit with uh, Putin. Um, But at least there was space in which they talked about possible outcomes that avoided some terrible conflagration, which probably both sides want to avoid. So you have France in that position pursuing diplomatic initiatives. Johnson clinging to the US, you know, as ever, you know, Tony Blair did it with Iraq and Afghanistan, speaking loudly, but without any clear sense of what follows from that loudness, beyond the naive hope that, uh, and he can't hope this, that Putin sits there trembling as uh, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss appear so stern and disapproving and all the rest of it. And it raises big questions about Britain's place in the world. It's not part of the European Union. And interestingly, the European Union, of course, allow member states to pursue their own foreign policy. It's it's one of several areas where there is complete, probably too much in some respects, uh, diversity. So with, famously with Iraq, you had Britain supporting America with a total unthinking inevitability. And France and Germany opposed. So the EU doesn't have a kind of coordinated foreign policy, but being part of a bigger group of countries provides a mechanism whereby you can coordinate approaches. So famously, after the disaster of Iraq, Jack Straw, who was a bit of a Eurosceptic as Foreign Secretary, worked with Germany and France and others to get some diplomatic initiative working in Iran. Tony Blair looked on warily because he still believed in evading these countries, but it was highly effective at the time. And it was an example of um, countries coming together, not because they had to, there is, as I say, no common foreign policy, but because they were part of something which provided a kind of forum where they could come together. And it would have been far more effective. I heard James Forsyth, the uh, Eurosceptic columnist at The Spectator, saying the other day that 
if Britain, France and Germany, the big powers in Europe, had worked together, maybe Putin would have considered what was going on in relation to what Europe was proposing. Um, But of course, it was fractured. um, And in the case of Johnson and Truss, posturing, going nowhere. I mentioned Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, without hesitation, really, and without thinking through the consequences. Tony Blair immediately backed uh, President Bush in both the invasion of Afghanistan and then the impatient rush towards Iraq, which incidentally undermined uh, what they were doing in Afghanistan. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's always worth repeating. Uh, When Claire Short was Overseas Development Secretary, um, she went to Kabul and she came back and said the Taliban are regrouping. This was quite a short time after the invasion. Uh, And she said the reason they are regrouping around the outskirts of Kabul was because uh, America was diverting its troops to Iraq to get ready for that war. And of course, Britain followed. And Tony Blair is being disingenuous now when he says, if only we knew what we know now about the internal divisions within Iraq um, and the likelihood of civil war uh, following an invasion, that would have been a factor in his consideration. So, but we, you know, we only found this out afterwards. Well, he, he knew about it. Everybody knew about it. He was warned about it. But he could not break with America. And on it has gone, really, since Suez. You know, uh, Suez was a terrible trauma for Britain. And Eden acted unilaterally, assuming America would back him. When America didn't back him, Britain was lost. And Macmillan, then the Chancellor, turned on the policy, saying it's going to cause an economic crisis. We haven't got American backing for this. And we all know the humiliation that followed. And it's been like that ever since with Britain. There's a sort of delusions of grandeur. There is a hawkishness at every junction and then a kind of dependence on what the American line is at any given time and to follow it. And meanwhile, its relationship with Europe has been the mess that we have covered many times on the podcast. You know, after Suez, uh, Macmillan took over and worked very hard to try and get in to the common market as it was then. You know, you know he got to do it Heath. Heath was his minister who uh, tried to negotiate Britain's entry then, made Heath absolutely determined to pull it off later. Harold Wilson flirted with it in the 60s to join, and but failed. And then Heath got us in, and then at every single moment after that, one of the major parties uh, was sort of screaming for us to leave. And so Britain doesn't know whether it's in Europe. At the moment, it's decided it's not. Um, But, uh, you know, it kind of asserts its own sovereignty whilst following the United States. Uh, But the United States administration views the British administration with great, great wariness. And you see what happens if uh, Johnson triggers Article 16 vis-a-vis the Irish protocol. The Biden administration is following that drama very, very closely. And Liz Truss will be a foreign secretary uh, turned away from the corridors of power in Washington if they do that. So it's not as if it's a sort of, 
you know, even a kind of dance between one giant and one little kind of dancer on the dance floor. It's more discordant than that. But because Britain really doesn't know of its place in the world, there are always going to be these moments of high tension when there are terrible moments of international tension. Uh, because Britain will sort of not be entirely clear what to do. And that brings me to, uh, briefly, if it's okay with you, uh, Keir Starmer's article and interviews he gave on uh, NATO. Once again, it seems to me, uh, the main objective of Keir Starmer's intervention uh, was domestic. Um, They still, in his office, get focus group reports and polling showing voters in the red wall still pissed off with Jeremy Corbyn and all this sort of thing. So the kind of aim of a lot of this is for Keir Starmer to say, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. So there's a bit in his Guardian article attacking Stop the War and, you know, hailing NATO and with selective examples of Labour's relationship with NATO, Bevin Healy, when he was Defence Secretary. But in order to be I'm not Jeremy Corbyn, demands that he excludes an analysis of what went wrong in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, when incidentally he was famously an opponent of Iraq and has argued that it was uh, was a breach of international law. And he went on the march, which was organised by this Stop the War committee and so on. Now, I know what he's trying to do. And in some ways, what Starmer has achieved uh, as leader is underrated. I mean, he's trying to do uh, what it took Labour 18 years to do after its 83 slaughter, uh, which is to win an election after the first slaughter. And so he is trying to change the Labour Party uh, and reassure, reassure, reassure. And so here he is now, I'm tough on defence, you know, if anything, Johnson should be tougher, all this kind of stuff that Blair used to do in the build-up to 97. The problem with it, uh, Tom Clark, the former editor of Prospect, no kind of fanatical Corbynista, uh, wrote a, a very good piece on um, in Prospect, it's on their website, on the problem with this. One, it... Uh, reminder as he reminded me when i read it this just obsessive thing within labor of factionalism briefings from starmer's office day in day out we're gonna smash the left and then the left responds and then briefings to the sunday times at the weekend uh, you know corbyn no way corbyn's gonna stand we're gonna destroy him all this stuff they think, the briefers, that it conveys change, that the Red Bull voters will think, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's not Corbyn anymore, you know. And actually, I think it conveys, you know, remember most voters don't follow politics closely, a deeply disturbed party. As Tom Clark wrote in this piece, um, the Tory party at some point will get rid of Boris Johnson. And when they do, they'll move on. There won't be hundreds in Westminster and beyond of Johnsonites campaigning against whoever succeeds. You know, it, it won't be like that. They will. The, the faction fighting is so much more intense in the modern Labour Party, and so that was the kind of aim of the piece. Whereas actually, 
as Kisama knows only too well from his uh, very thought-through opposition to the war in Iraq, um, that the world is more complex than that hawkish machismo suggests. And, I mean, he, he kind of wrote, I'll oh, stop the war, gives comfort to people like Putin. I, Putin will probably hardly knows about these, as if he's framing his, you know, foreign invasions or whatever he's going to be doing by the time you hear this podcast on, oh, yeah, the stop the war lot, uh, you know, backing, you know, it's all... It, anyway, I don't think he believes this. It was all, I must seem to be strong. I must not be Corbyn. I must not be Corbyn. Wherever I go, I must be not be Corbyn. I must be patriotic. I must be tough on defence. And as I say, I think the world is a more complicated place. This is not 1994 to 1997. This is a country uh, where in Scotland, uh, the party that wants independence sweeps the board in elections. This is a country uh, that voted for Brexit, a catastrophic move, but a revolutionary one. This is a country where there will be a range of parties offering change with a radical verve at the next election. Certainly the Tories will. They are all over the place at the moment at what form that offer will take. But there is an energy still to them. You've got the sort of one nation wing stuttering every now and erratically into life and you got the old thatcherites but there is still an energy around that never-ending debate that needs resolution in favor of the one nation tories but but i say there's energy and then you know on the other side you got the greens you could disagree with them and you know note the unrealism but there's a kind of energy there and then the lib dems now are back as an anti-tory force after the nick clegg catastrophe and i just think this here i am i'm not jeremy corbyn i'm tough 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 oh yes nato 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 uh i know what why they do you know the red wall they think labor was unpatriotic and soft on defense and all this kind of thing but the world is more complex and voters are more responsive to messages that go beyond bland small c conservative reassurance so I just think it's a strategic thing. And Tom Clark wrote about it very well. And what happened with Tony Blair in the mid-90s is very interesting. You can see a line from there to Iraq. It was, you know, when he changed Clause 4, he showed a draft to Peter Mandelson of the new clause, you know, replacing Clause 4. And there wasn't a line about defence. And Peter Mandelson scribbled on the draft isn't a player government going to go, you know, up for going to war. Now, what Peter Manderson meant was not it was going to go to war. He had no idea that Iraq and all these other things were going to happen, but that it must be seen to be tough on defence. And sure enough, a line was inserted into the new clause. And, you know, Blair did the same kind of stuff. You know, he, 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 he talked about the bridgehead between Britain would be the bridgehead between Europe and the United States. But of course, at key moments, it had to decide between one or the other, Iraq. Do we go with the other two big powers in the European Union? No, we go with the United States and so on. And and it was partly because of this these internal considerations. Labour was seen as soft on defence in the 80s, and now it would be seen as tough on defence. And yeah, you see us go in to Iraq, and you wait for that Baghdad bounce in the polls when we topple Saddam. 
like the Falklands factor when Thatcher uh, went ahead, there was much hope of a Baghdad bounce. Talking of Thatcher, by the way, with the Falklands, it's very interesting. Uh, it's seen as an act of great leadership, her victory in the Falklands. I think it had a big influence on Tony Blair, who fought the next by-election after the Falklands in Beaconsfield. And Robin Cook went along, and uh, Tony Blair told him he was struck by how, I mean, it was a safe Tory seat, but how revered Thatcher was as a, as a war winner in the Falklands. And she had this Falklands factor. But even that victory was not the product of great courage and uh, and with Britain secure in its place in the world. The opposite, really. She had no choice but to uh, respond to the uh, uh, overtaking of the Falklands uh, by the Argentinian junta, as it was known. Um, because uh, if she hadn't responded militarily, she would have been forced to resign. It had become a key test of leadership. On that famous Saturday debate in the Commons when the Falklands had been invaded, people who she revered, like Enoch Powell said, this will be the great test of her leadership. She has to respond militarily or she must go. And she had no choice. She didn't want to go. So, you know, it wasn't about bravery. It was about expediency in her case. She either resigned or tried to get those islands back. Islands, incidentally, that were invaded because of cutbacks uh, introduced by Nicholas Ridley, her, one of her other close allies, in that part of the area patrolling the Falklands. And Argentina said, oh, yeah, they're, they're cutting back. We're in. We'll go. We can take them over now. And so, yeah, uh, British foreign policy is has always been confused since 1945. And, of course, Churchill hovers on the shoulders of these people. Neville Chamberlain hovers on the shoulders of these people. Then the Suez thing, Eden. They don't want to be like Eden. They don't want to be like Chamberlain. They want to be Churchillian and all this kind of thing. The mess over Britain's relationship with Europe, it means that British foreign policy although rarely a big issue at general elections, determines the fate of many prime ministers. They don't really know where they are or what they're going to do, but they talk big. Global Britain, global Britain, you know. Anyway, there's a few thoughts for you on uh, British foreign policy. And, you know, you, you, you kind of listen to this at different points during the week. Um, but uh, that's a kind of where we are at the moment and will be, frankly, whatever happens when you're listening uh, to this uh, podcast. And now, if it's okay with all of you, time for some brilliant questions. Okay, so uh, let's go first of all. So we've got through to, um, yeah, I've done the election proposals on Patreon. So, yeah, Alex Hyde writes, uh, Steve, good to see you on Patreon. Oh, thank you, Alex. Uh, I've never used it at all, but we'll make an exception here. Great. Yeah, I didn't know much about it, actually, Alex, until the brilliant guys at Podmasters, uh, where I record the podcast and so on, kind of told me about it. And yeah, I think it's exciting. 
Oh, yeah, actually, sorry, this is an election one. Um, two more uh, election suggestions, then we're on to your questions. Uh, yeah, because Alex suggests the election of 1906, where the Liberal Party under Henry Campbell Bannerman won a huge majority. I think there could be a few interesting lessons to draw from it. Key issues included a split Tory party that appeared committed to endangering free trade in a way that put living standards at risk, all in the name of imperial preference. Yeah, this Tony Blair always goes on about the new divide in politics is open versus closed. It was huge in 1906, as it was in the time of the Corn Laws when Robert Peel was Prime Minister in the 19th century. Oh yeah, so there are contemporary echoes with 1906. That's a good one, uh, Alex. So thank you. That'll be on the the list. Uh, Sean Coolstone also writes, great news that you have joined Patreon. Thank you, Sean. And looking forward to the bonus podcast. It will be interesting to hear your analysis. Oh yeah, another one for 1992 and or the 2017 election. I think the latter in particular remains under-analyzed. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It sort of got airbrushed out of history because it didn't accord with what pundits thought was going to happen. So, uh, yeah, so another vote for 92, but also 2017. Good, good thoughts. Thank you uh, very much. Um, now, uh, on to some other questions. Yeah, Ed Francis, who also went to York, like me, uh, not quite your, your York peer, he says. Yeah, I know you're a lot older, Ed. Anyway, I hope you're doing well at the moment. Very glad to hear you've joined Patreon. Oh, thank you, Ed. Uh, so I can finally start paying for the analysis. Oh, thank you. That's great, Ed. Anyway, this is his question. The furore among some Labour members around Tory defector Christian Wakeford being welcomed into the Parliamentary Party due to his Conservative voting record has got me wondering should supporters of the party become more pragmatic about welcoming former Tories? I'm thinking about figures like Rory Stewart, whose voting record is far from progressive, but who has a real-world experience. Would people like him be useful to have in the opposition tent? Um, yeah, he would, is the answer, but he, he won't do it. Uh, he's just not Labour. You see, most people, defections are very rare because they are... Um, deeply traumatic for the person making the defection. Rory Stewart evidently is not tribal. He's not a member of... I think he was running as an independent, wasn't he, as mayor of London until he pulled out. But I'll tell you something, and Christian Wakeford now will be going through something similar. Some of you will remember Sean Woodward. He defected from the Conservatives to Labour soon after the 97 election, about two years later. And on the night, on the day he defected, he came uh, into the studio for Millbank, and I knew him quite well. And I walked. I was at the BBC at the time, and I walked back from for Millbank uh, with him towards Parliament. And as we were walking back, Damien Green uh, came to warn Sean Woodward. Now, Damien Green was uh, part of that wing of the Tory Party at the time kind of pro-European, one-nation-ish Tories, and was a friend of Woodward's. And Sean said, ah, Damien. And Damien walked straight past him, stone-faced, did not say a word. And that's the kind of thing you experience when you switch parties uh, from Labour to Tory. At times of great 
turbulence. It happens. It happened quite a bit from the mid-90s onwards to Labour's advantage. Some joined the Lib Dems, but moved away from the Tories. But I think the likes of Rory Stewart, yeah, yeah, I think Keir Starmer would welcome him tomorrow. That one won't happen, I suspect. Although, you know, we're in a weird phase of politics, you just don't know. Uh, Lee Wall writes from Liverpool. Uh, yeah, he had an interview with Michael Hesseltine on another podcast. Lee, please, prioritise this one. Um, well, you, you obviously listen to this as well. So thank you. Um, anyway, apparently in the interview uh, with Hesseltine, it was suggested to Hesseltine that he would have been better off asking his own supporters to back Margaret Thatcher after the first round of voting in the leadership ballot in 1990. The theory is she would have then lost the 92 election and he would have been in a stronger position to take over as leader. I heard Michael Heseltine reflect on this. In other words, he couldn't win in 1990 because he had challenged her, the MPs weren't forgiving enough of such an act. But if he had... a after the first round, when she won, but not by a huge amount, remember she resigned after the first round, Uh, if he had stepped forward and said, that's it, I'm lending my support to you, she could have carried on. There wouldn't have been another round with her resigning, you know, and Major and Heard and uh, everyone else coming in. Uh, Yeah, I heard Heseltine say that, and then he could have been leader in 92. I think that leaps so many hurdles And I think Michael Heseltine still reflects on that period, on how he couldn't win, but was there any route that maybe he might have done at some future date? I suspect all routes were blocked, as I explore in my book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, in the uh, chapter on Heseltine. So, um, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Denise Willier uh, writes, uh, oh, congratulations on the Patreon channel. Thank you, Denise. Yeah, I love how you're building this community of rock and roll political geeks. I, we're not geeks, Denise. I think we are people just who love life and politics in all its forms. And uh, did a happy dance at the news as I walked along Shoreham Beach. Oh, that's a great, great image. Um, anyway, Denise was... Uh, talking about uh, the first attempts by Guito Harry, Johnson's new press secretary, someone who I know quite well. When he um, gave that interview where (laughs) Guito Harry said he's not all a clown or not 100% a clown. Uh, And then in the afternoon, we learned of an angry mob ambushing Keir Starmer and the police. Yes, this all happened on the same day and having to bundle him in a car. In my view, Johnson's spiteful remarks uh, about Savile were a deliberate act of stochastic terrorism. Now, I haven't heard of this phrase before, Denise. Something we saw play out almost daily during the Trump regime. Yeah, there are echoes with Trump. For your listeners, oh, there's a, yeah, explanation. Stochastic terrorism is the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of a violent act, which is statistically probable. Yeah, well, that kind of uh, fits in with what happened with the Savile thing and then Starmer. And yet Tory MPs were underwhelmed when Starmer was treated in the way he was yeah it was it was an extraordinary day i think there are two things to say um one which i think you might disagree with denise these anti-vax demonstrators are there all the time 
and they would have been there if Johnson hadn't uttered a word about Starmer and Saville. And th- the same thing would have happened uh, anyway. Uh, they are around, they are dangerous in their anger and the proximity they get towards politicians. Having said that, clearly there was a link. They had another tool to be angry about, and that was uh, Johnson making this nonsense uh, about... I mean, it's it's absurd, the idea that Keir Starman said, oh, yeah, there's this sadful stuff that would prosecute a load of journalists and ignore... You know, it's just ridiculous. Um, and uh, it was, again, surprising that no new Tory MPs spoke out. Uh, those who criticised Johnson and told him to withdraw it that evening when Starmer was attacked were those who had done so before. That really interesting guy who was outrageously dropped as Northern Ireland secretary and he had been a chief whip, Julian Smith, condemned it and said Johnson's got to withdraw. But he has already been critical. And the Tory MPs, as I say, I think they're in a state of bewildered uh, uncertainty about what to do about Johnson, most of them. And therefore, they remain silent. And silence is a form of weakness, really, uh, when something terrible like that happened to Starmer. So I agree with you about that, but I think they would have still been there uh, because they are just fueled with anger over this vaccine business and we're we're dealing with layers and layers here of um, emotions uh, to put it politely Uh, thank you Denise Uh, keep dancing on that beach Uh, Martin Jones uh, a regular listener from sunny Birmingham I hope it's sunny now Martin I'm recording on a day when it's really cold but maybe the sunshine's always in Birmingham Uh, Following on your theme of vacuous statements politicians regularly employ, sometimes it's the interviewers, Martin. This this theme started when an interviewer asked, actually, I think it was Keir Starmer, aren't you playing politics with something? And um, some brilliant emailer pointed out that playing politics is what you do (laughs) as a politician. Um, So it's, it's not unsurprising that politics is a dimension when you are a politician. Anyway, so Martin's uh, vacuous phrase is, out knocking on doors in my constituency. Uh, Yeah, it's a good one. I believe it's used to assert a view apparently held by the public that reinforces the stance of a politician and attempts to kill any disagreement. Yeah. For example, I heard Peter Bone recently use the phrase to dismiss any thought that his constituents were in the least bit bothered about our Prime Minister's alleged involvement in Partygate. Yeah, I heard it. I'd been out knocking on the door. You know, they, they're not bothered about it at all. Um, so, yeah, only once in the 33 years I've lived in my house have I received a knock on the door by a politician, and that was during a council election campaign, inquiring if I needed a lift to the polling station. Yeah, Exactly. Not many people do. But you're right, it's used to actually amplify a view held by the politician, um, claiming vast support by knocking on doors. Uh, Now over to Tokyo. Nigel Tantrum. Is that your... Is that your name, Nigel? Tantrum. Interesting. Tokyo. Anyway, I am reminded of Dennis Penis, aka Paul K, who was famous for once asking of Demi Moore, 
Under any circumstances, and if it was tastefully done, would you consider keeping your clothes on in a movie? Under any circumstances, Nigel wonders, and if it was tastefully done, do you think Boris Johnson would ever consider resigning? Yeah, I've forgotten that line about Demi Moore. Yeah. Um, he No, he won't consider resigning. Uh, not for years, um, because he wants to win another election, as he sees it. Um, he he wants to beat Cameron. He's got that Etonian sense of destiny and competitive hunger. Um, that means he won't resign. Uh, if the Tories want a new leader, they're going to have to force him out. Now, on that very uh, uh, topic, I think, David Smith, uh, writes, uh, thank you for the pod, which I always enjoy, mostly dog walking in the Cranley countryside rather than bread break. I never get that right. Bread baking. Uh, it, oh, yeah. It enables me to sound clever when I talk politics to my daughter, Ellie, who is an A-level politics student at Godalming College. Uh, so, oh, yeah, apparently she, uh, Ellie does a podcast too for the other, with some other students, um, called First Past the Pod. God, don't, let's not get into First Past the Post, David. Uh, the listeners of, to this podcast will start writing in, in their droves, waiting for the electoral reform special that will come at some point. Anyway, David said, we were talking about the Grey update session in Parliament and often discussed Prime Minister's questions. We concluded the quality of questions asked in Parliament are often very poor. Keir, very good, but surely he could do, he could coordinate with Ian Blackford, that's the SNP leader, of course, and other MPs to have a decisive theme. And the further question should be shorter and more controlling and effective. Theresa May was a good example during the grey update of a short, pointed and effective question, particularly as it came from a former Prime Minister. Consequences, yeah. The way Johnson treated May is beginning to have consequences. Yeah, you're right, David. There were times uh, with in previous parliaments where the whips were really effective at coordinating questions, and the questions were short and punchy and connected. So a prime minister kind of staggers out at the end of such sessions. Um, I agree with you. You don't see much of that at the moment. And I also agree with you that Keir Starmer is getting better at prime minister's questions. Um, Richard Harrison. I've been listening since last summer, but this is my first time getting in touch, though. Uh, oh, oh, right. Well, hi, Richard. Uh, in last week's uh, podcast, you talked about not agreeing with Lindsay Hoyle's frequent injunctions to ministers that all major statements should be made to the Commons uh, rather than at other events, the media and so on. I tend to agree with you, but that's not realistic and not necessary. Now, I do wonder if Hoyle risks making himself and the Commons look irrelevant and out of touch. We seem to be in a cycle where Hoyle lays down the law on the issue, a minister comes to the Commons to give an insincere apology, and within weeks the government makes announcements outside the House and the whole cycle starts again. You won't st he won't stop uh, ministers announcing things on the media, uh, Richard. So you're right, he should probably moan less about it. Um, I understand he, he represents presents the commons and um, the commons in theory should be the forum where big announcements are made but the reality is that when you've got all these outlets reaching millions of voters any government's going to choose those outlets too the last labor government did they didn't announce everything in the house of commons 
Uh, Stephen Townsley says, Jacob Rees-Mogg, of course, the new Minister of State for Brexit Opportunities, uh, has been downgraded from the Leader of the House. He can return to fantastical announcements about Britain being able to bring back the groat to replace decimal currency. Yeah, he's doing that kind of thing already. The Sunday Express on Sunday had a big front page with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and the Brexit gains that we're going to be just enjoying in the coming years. Mogg seems to trade on faux Latin and relying on a forelock-tugging public. He previously said Brexit benefits would emerge in 50 years, so it's a very long-term appointment. Yeah, I remember him saying, oh, 50 years' time, we'll look back and see the benefits. We can't wait for that, Jacob. So, yeah, that, that again, you see, that appointment, like all the other changes last week, were made to please MPs. It was a dialogue with his MPs, an attempt to buttress him uh, in number 10 and nothing else, really. Noah Keat, uh, Steve, I hope you're keeping well. I'm writing to ask what you thought about the recent development of former prime ministers intervening to a far greater extent on contemporary political debates. Only this week, we've had uh, Tony Blair uh, has given an interview to The Times. John Major spoke at the Institute of Government. Gordon Brown has regularly spoken about the vaccine rollout, while Theresa May remains a constituency MP willing to ask tough questions. It appears only David Cameron has slipped into obscurity, perhaps due to his role over the Greensill affair. Yeah, Cameron, can you imagine him standing up and condemning Johnson on grounds of integrity uh, when he still tormented by and haunted by the Greensill affair. Is this intervention from former leaders a new trend? Uh, or in polit- political history, has there been a long-running trend? Is it a positive development or not? Yeah, well, that's a whole podcast, really, what former prime ministers do. Former prime ministers cannot resist intervening at various moments. Uh, Margaret Thatcher famously made John Major's life pretty hellish before that Ted Heath made Margaret Thatcher's life difficult at times. He could not disguise his loathing of her. Uh, You know, actually, Tony Blair with Gordon Brown was relatively restrained. And uh, but now, as you say, we've got uh, all these former prime ministers speaking. It's partly uh, a case that, you know, a prime ministers tend to be much younger when they get the job. So there are going to be lots of former prime ministers out there, still quite young, with views. And they're not going to shut up. Um, so, you know, I think Blair tries to put quite a lot of influence on Keir Starmer privately, but speaks out publicly in a way that puts pressure on Keir Starmer to adopt the views and strategy of Labour's only election winner in recent times, and one of the few election winners. But it doesn't necessarily mean his judgments now in this context are as skillfully formed as they were in the mid-1990s. Theresa May famously forced out. She's still got plenty of energy left in her. Cameron could have done if he hadn't made such a mess of, um, well, actually being prime minister and post-prime minister. And John Major's really interesting because when he was prime minister, he really could struggle to get an audience. He would make speeches. People say, oh, God, it's so, he's so boring. He's so desperate. He's so uh, doomed to be removed or lose. Now he times his interventions quite 
skillfully. Every three or four months, then he disappears for a bit and then he comes back. And people listen respectfully. And although he didn't uh, wound Johnson last week because uh, it's up to the MPs, and most MPs either can't remember John Major or see him as this Remainer who doesn't like Johnson. Uh, But if you actually look at the speech, it was an utterly powerful condemnation of this government and its conduct way beyond Boris Johnson. Um, So I think it's a good thing, uh, you know, in the sense that they have wholly uh, legitimate right to intervene based on much experience. But I also think their judgments need to be treated with a great deal of caution. Because although they all convince themselves they are viewing things from the challenges of today, they can't really leave behind their own pasts and how they won elections. And they can't pluck themselves wholly out of the context from which they became prime ministers, even when the context is unrecognisably different. Uh, But they absolutely add to the sense of what's going on. Um, it's a crowded field. It could be getting more crowded soon. Might be another former Prime Minister Noah out there. Okay, over to France. Our regular correspondent Dominique Jewell said she said that uh, uh, while the proposed, um, yeah, this is the difference with France and Britain over the energy rise. While the proposal, uh, this is in France, I think to offset the fifty-four percent increase in the energy price cap of the UKG, the UK government appears to be an enforced loan to consumers. The French, this is the Sunak policy, the French government's policy is to target assistance to those who are most acutely affected by the cost of living crisis. Those groups include drivers, pensioners, low-income householders and job seekers. The latest French state intervention is the imposition of a price cap on electricity of a 4% rise, without which electricity prices would have increased by 45%. So, um, yeah, uh, that's an interesting uh, contrast with um, what's happening here. Uh, I don't know whether it's influenced by the fact that it's an election year, Dominica, but um, that seems more carefully targeted than the Sunak loan, uh, which of course reflects uh, uh, Sunak's uh, self-described fiscal conservatism. He, he does not want to spend much money. And it's interesting in the context of a government which seeks to level up and constantly faces demands for intervention that you have the a chancellor whose fiscal conservatism is starting to become more muscular uh, because Johnson is uh, so much weaker and more vulnerable at the moment. Okay, thank you, uh, Dominique. Uh, James Sinclair. In the spirit of the rock and roll community of the podcast, I would think, thought I would attach a video of my band on tour a few years ago. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Uh, it's great. Um, and I've watched it. I can't, uh, all I can do is say I enjoyed watching it, uh, uh, James. And um, yeah, uh, it, it was fantastic. Uh, everyone else listening will feel a bit excluded from that bit of uh, our conversation together. Anyway, now we're all back together because uh, James goes on to say, on the politics side, I wonder if you agree with my theory about the current strategic thinking in the Conservative Party. Almost everyone, bar a few remaining loyalists and possibly Johnson himself, Uh, seems to recognise that the game is up for Boris. This begs the question, why are they not moving to replace him now? 
I've thought for a while that the answer to this lies in the cost of living crisis and the local elections in May. Although the energy price rises have been announced, the bills are yet to hit the doormats, and when they do in April, it will be very bumpy indeed for the government. There's also still a bit to come from Partygate, together with the two years of cumulative incompetence. Uh, there are going to be a disaster for the Tories in the May elections. I'm not sure about that, James. I think the May elections, uh, they, the Tories won't do well, uh, but they will easily be able, to, I think, to explain away the midterm May elections. Most governing parties do badly. But anyway, James's theory, none of the front runners want the job until after May. Sunak is surely holding back on serious help on energy bills until he becomes Prime Minister. And the Parliamentary Party wants to wipe the slate clean with a new leader in the summer. So it seems to suit all parties to keep Johnson in place as a human shield against all the flack that's to come. Do I agree with this? Uh, and James said, oh, thank you for the podcast, great podcast. I'll support you on Patreon. Thank you very much, James. Uh, yeah, I I do see how it would be better for the Tory party if a new leader emerges in June after all the traumas of the next few months have been lived through. But um, where I think you are wrong, James, uh, is your assumption that this has been carefully coordinated by the parliamentary party. The Parliamentary Party is all over the place. They don't quite know what to do. Some say, oh yeah, it might be that the vote of confidence is triggered because MPs are putting letters in that we don't know about. Um, So there isn't a bunch of dissenters in the Tory party carefully coordinating this to get the timing right. Nor can Sunak or Truss be seen to be overtly conspiring for a vacancy in the summer. So while that might make sense, and indeed might happen, I don't think it's being coordinated in quite that way, however logical that might be. Um, Thank you very much for that and for your support on Patreon. I hope you enjoy the bonuses uh, via Patreon. Um, And finally, uh, the journalist Tom, excuse me, Tom, if I don't get the pronunciation right, Tom Gokalan Kozlowski. I hope that's pronounced right. Uh, Anyway, uh, Tom says, I always love listening to your podcast when cooking, ironing or walking through Oxford's Port Meadow. What a a fantastic combination of pursuits, uh, Tom. Uh, A conversation this weekend inspired me to get in touch. A lefty friend of mine admitted that he'd recently retweeted Anne Applebaum. She's a writer and uh, author of many uh, books. Um, A thing that would have seemed unthinkable for him Uh, some time ago. If you'd have asked me during the 2010 to 2015 Parliament whether I would want a Conservative leader who believed in an active government and capital investment, I would have far preferred that to the -the cut-to-the-bone austerity Tories such as Osborne and co. But as we now know, the active state that Johnson believes in comes with a culture war and a nasty post-truth English nationalism. So, is it now time for us to rethink politics a little and look to create a pro-democracy, pro-science, pro-truth alliance that could stretch from Caroline Lucas and Diane Abbott at one end, but could also include some of the few conservatives who are sane conservatives, as Tom puts it, who are left? Maybe after we have united to flush out this nasty nationalism, we can then return to the more economic-based arguments of previous eras. Well... Tom, that's a sweeping uh, kind of scenario. Where I disagree with you 
is that we never lose those economic-based arguments. And the economic-based arguments tend to trigger divisions, I think, you can still use between left and right. Uh, There are nuances within that. There are some Tories who believe in much greater interventionism and spending, Johnson being one of them. Uh, Then, you know, to add to the confusion, you had the new star of this government, Steve Barclay, you know, who's been appointed to sort of run Johnson's uh, number 10 um, state in the Sunday Telegraph on Sunday that uh, what he wanted was a smaller state. You know, they are all over the place. Um, You cannot have a smaller state if you want um, to level up. You need agencies to do this uh, and and funding and so on. So there's a debate even within the Conservative Party to have that kind of internationalist alliance which you imply uh, against English nationalism is, I think, too vague. Um, English nationalism takes all kinds of imprecise forms and to sort of form a coalition against it you would probably find it starts falling apart very quickly Um, so I don't see that as the way through to be honest uh, Tom but um, thank you for raising it that would be a kind of uh, big government wouldn't it sort of a coalition of David Gork and um, from the that wing of the Tory party and Rory Stewart and Diane Abbott, you see, they and and um, Caroline Lucas. The thing is, even just they don't agree on that much, actually, and they would agree on some things, but not very much. It would make politics very interesting. Anyway, thank you for that, Tom. If you're in Port Meadow now, enjoy. It. Uh, go for a swim in the Thames. No, it'd be too cold later in the summer. Um, thank you all very much uh, for fantastic and, of course, informative questions. Um, and, um, do you know, I'm going to stop for a second uh, because I've forgotten. Having said there was a brilliant question from a lawyer, it's from David Smith. Uh, just a few observations as a criminal lawyer for over 20 years. Read this questionnaire issue, you know, the questionnaire the police have sent to number 10. Uh, this is really interesting. If you want to go to uh, a person read criminal law, uh, oh yeah, he, he makes some recommendations of other people to go to. But he says, I've never had a client sent a questionnaire to fill in when being investigated. The only similar procedure was during COVID when face-to-face interviews under caution were being avoided. And then we were sent a series of questions we could respond to by acknowledging they had been seen and provide a written response. The response could answer all, some or none of the questions. The crucial thing is that these alternatives to an interview were still under caution. Um, and there's a quote from it. You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. He goes on to say, I'm not clear if these Downing Street questionnaires are being sent under this proviso. The other crucial thing to know is whether there is any disclosure. Read the evidence the police have been sent with the questionnaires. When you're interviewed or sent out questions in COVID times, you would expect as a defence lawyer to receive some disclosure. 
It's a grey area as police can hold back evidence they have, even when when there is forensic or CCTV, for example. However, it's normally a brief summary of why the person is a suspect. It's a crucial piece of information when advising someone, as what a suspect then says could tactically be a disaster if he's given account which could then be discredited by evidence the police have kept up their sleeve. I was also surprised to read the investigation was limited to breaches of the health regulations. It seems possible that misconduct in public office or even perverting the course of justice may have occurred if phones were cleaned or emails sent advising this. These questionnaires, therefore, raise quite a few issues to me if I was advising someone about answering them. The consequences definitely need to be considered. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. It was sort of just reported in a very matter-of-fact way. Oh, yeah, a question as being sent out without, as ever with the police, much explanation as to why they were doing it this way rather than interviewing people and what uh, the status of the questionnaires were beyond the fact that you know they have a legal uh, status of some sort because um, people have been warned not to lie. Yeah, <laughs> lying being a theme of recent months, if not years. Um, so thank you for that. I mean, yeah, I think more needs to be looked into as to the precise form of these questionnaires. And see, I think one of the tactics Boris Johnson might use is just to put work, work, work in whatever questions he's being asked. A lot of journalists think the questionnaire will leak at some point. Um, there being 50 of them at least being sent out. Um, and then it will, how will the police prove unless they've got evidence? It wasn't work. Um, and they'll, he'll sort of therefore challenge the police not to give him a penalty notice on that basis or anyway, who knows? Um, uh, but I suspect even the police who, who don't exactly rush at a speedy pace, uh, will be able to reach conclusions fairly soon because they'll get their email responses. They've had all the evidence from Sue Gray and presumably that will be it. We can await their verdict and then get the full Sue Gray report. Who knows what the wider context will be for that. But anyway, that's about it for today. Uh, So as I was saying earlier, thank you. Please join Patreon. We will have some fun and insights together in that world as well as this one. Um, And oh yeah, King's Place is next Monday. Uh, February the 21st, live at 7pm. And who knows what will be happening then, but my plan is to reflect uh, at King's Place on... uh, Boris Johnson will be making a statement that day lifting all COVID restrictions in the name of freedom, uh, partly to woo his MPs. So I think I'm going to reflect much more on this term, freedom way beyond the context of COVID. Margaret Thatcher used it a lot, if you remember. Um, It's a fascinating word. But uh, who knows? Who knows what will be happening then? You know, I choose, I have to sometimes change the topic on the day, depending on what epic drama is being played out. Um, And so that's on uh, Monday. It's also streaming live, so you can get uh, tickets for either the show itself, which will be great. See you there. See you at the bar afterwards. Um, or um, streaming live if you're watching from around the world. They're all all on the King's Place website. And thank you again for listening. Have a great week. Who knows where we'll be in a week's time, Uh, but hopefully we'll 
make sense of life at King's Place and on this podcast and elsewhere. And um, have a great time. Take care. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye.